This is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Scott Walter. He's the head of Capital Research Center, here to discuss an article on the First Things website that he published last month entitled The Founders of Black Lives Matter. Welcome, Mr. Walter. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. All right. Uh, first, just what does Capital Research do? Uh, we are a think tank in D.C. that specializes in investigating the left deeply uh, and exposing it widely. And we especially pay attention to the nonprofit world because nonprofits are so critical to the way the left functions, much more so than any political party. Uh, but I, I think you're in error, Scott, because – the not-for-profit world, the funding world, especially in, in political areas, is completely dominated by right-wing organizations and individuals, correct? <laughs> uh, close, close, or as a wah character would say, up to a point, Lord Beaverbrook. <laughs> um, in fact, of course, in every single—well, fact, I, well, I was just testifying to a Senate Judiciary Committee— a uh, few weeks ago uh, up on this very question, and they were utterly crushed to hear me say your side, because it was about dark money, which is something that, you know, right-wingers invented in a lab outside of Wuhan, yes, um, yes. apparently. But uh, I believe the simplest line was, um, you have more dark money groups operating for many more years with much, much more dark money. Scott, Scott, uh, I got but, no hostile questions. I got no questions of any kind. Well, um, they, did, they didn't want to go into that, Scott, because you, you have the goods. You've done your homework. You've got all the empirical data, and they don't want this data to get too much light. They want us to stay in the darkness. So qu very quickly, define dark money for us. Well, there isn't a, a, a universal definition, and, the, and by the way, the, the – Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator holding this hearing in his own report about this, gives the vaguest of definitions. It could, legally speaking, it could it could fit you know half a dozen different things. The original meaning was 501c4 nonprofits, which are the more political style nonprofit, but it's now used as well to talk about foundations, to talk about 501c3 charities, to talk about donor advised funds. So it's a the, the gist that they want to say is the, the donors are hiding, and we need to out those donors. Uh, and of course, the reason they want to out the donors is because, as I 
also told the same senator, you have more mobs as well, and you want those donors exposed to your mobs so there won't be any donors like that anymore. Is there a lot of uh, political or worse intimidation going on of conservative donors out there in the, the public sphere? Absolutely. The same senator just held another hearing a couple of days ago, again, pounding the same drum. Um, they are very much hoping to force disclosure uh, in every possible way because they know, you know, uh, Heritage Foundation staffers, first things interns, are not going to go to the Hamptons with bullhorns at five o'clock in the morning and harass George Soros on his lovely estate. Um, but you can find conservative groups whose board members have had SEIU thugs, uh, and Lord knows the Black Lives Matter folks would be happy to do this too, uh, out there intimidating, harassing. You know, Tucker Carlson was chased out of Washington, D.C. by a mob like that. I mean, you know, we all know which side is the dangerous side. Right, right. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Of those who are conservative funders, let's make a distinction. Uh, to what degree are those funders free market libertarian conservatives, but who are social liberals? Well, that's a great point, too, that if you take what is very roughly considered, you know, the whole right of center universe, a lot of that money is precisely from the more cold-blooded libertarian types. And they very much don't like to dirty their hands with any sort of social issue. Although I will say I see a little change in that. Um, you know, it's because as we're all persecuted so brutally and as the left's naked power lust is, you know, is ever more frighteningly and bloodily out there. Um, there's a little movement, but, but you're right. A lot of it is, is, uh, somewhat squishy and certainly, you know, the establishment Republican party type folks are also typically pretty squishy and, and unwilling to fight on many issues and unwilling to, to fight hard. So it's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Okay. To your article on the founders of Black Lives Matter. First of all, why did you write that article? Uh, well, because uh, nobody else will. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm very proud of the article. There's, and there's also there's an even longer version on the capitalresearch.org website entitled Radical Lives Matter. Hmm. Um, I do it because, of course, the, the press, the regular press, has no intention whatsoever of uh, presenting these radical extremists as anything other than poor little victims um, who are harmless and just suffer all their lives and, and, and make no threats themselves and the rest. And of course, that's, that's just ridiculous. These are Marxists. You know, the best you can find, even in the conservative press, these people are typically called Marxists. Mark, that's unfair. Marxist just means like an English major, right? That's all we, <laughs> we think of when we think of as a Marxist. Um, but, uh, these are explicitly Marxist Leninists. These people admire some of the most violent tyrants the world has ever known and some of the most violent movements America has ever seen, like the Black Panthers, uh, and, and even worse. Um, so uh, it is an, it's outrageous. It's an outrageous betrayal of truth 
to depict these people as they would like to have themselves depicted, uh, namely as just poor little victims gently raising their voice to object to the brutal, white, patriarchal uh, oppressors that, that govern our society. So you, you profiled three founders. Tell us uh, quickly, who were these three people? Sure. Uh, Black Lives Matter really starts in 2013. Uh, that's when uh, George Zimmerman, uh, who had killed Trayvon Martin, a young uh, a black youth, uh, was acquitted of charges uh, through the rule of law. And uh, that lit the spark. So the way it worked is uh, there's three founders, Alicia Garza, Patrice Talors, and Opal Tometi. And the way it happened is uh, Alicia Garza coined the phrase uh, Black Lives Matter uh, in a public posting she did that she called a love letter to black people. Patrice Colores grabbed the phrase and turned it into a Twitter hashtag. And then Opal Tometi uh, started organizers, uh, organizing people online uh, and building the website blacklivesmatter.com. So that's how it gets started. Okay. Now, of those three folks, um, Opal Tometi, uh, she's the daughter of Nigerian immigrants, um, and she had been active in uh, left-wing groups like the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. Uh, that's why she was adept at organizing online, uh, building a website, and the rest. Um, her biography at BlackLivesMatter.com says she's a student of liberation theology, so our first things, theologically inclined readers would be interested in that. And she's other wonderful things like a transnational feminist, or whatever that means. Um, wait, uh, wait, Kalors, wait, Scott, are all three of them lesbians? Uh, Kometi has never uh, declared any unconventional sexuality. Okay. Uh, but Patrice Kalors and um, Alicia Garza uh, both refer to themselves in various ways, queer or uh, lesbian or the rest. But they are the, – the organization was outspokenly – uh, anti-heteronormativity, correct? That, that's absolutely true. This is another huge part of the lies that the regular media perpetrate. Um, the founders could not be more clear that this is not simply about policing. You could have absolutely 100% perfect, wonderful uh, policing in America this afternoon, and they would not remotely be satisfied. And they're very clear about that if you bother to pay them the respect of listening to what they say and write. The uh, the the other two, Patrice Cullors, what was her background? Um, well, she is the one who's now executive director of the Black Lives uh, Matter Global Network Foundation. And... Um, she has a memoir, When They Call You Terrorist. Uh, it's now out in a second edition for young adults. Uh, that's right. real cutesy. She was born in Van Nuys, uh, California, um, and she has a very – I mean on the human level, she has a very sad history, um, and, and one can understand how she uh, would end up with unconventional views in many ways because uh, her family uh, broke up in multiple ways. She was told when she was around 12 that her father was actually not her father. There was a different man who was her father, and the man she thought was her father was the father of her siblings. Um, but, uh, but still, in this brutally oppressive America, 
She ended up earning a bachelor's in religion and philosophy from UCLA. She got a master in fine arts from USC. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it wasn't all brutal oppression, it would seem. Um, but uh, uh, and then she went on to things like here's a question I always ask people. You know, I just mentioned she has a, her memoir right now, actually two mem two versions of the memoir. Um, the reason that memoir happened is because she was speaking on a panel at Martha's Vineyard uh, alongside two Hollywood stars, Danny Glover and Issa Rae. And um, a St. Martin's Press person walked up to her afterwards and said, we'd like to do a book by you. Now, Mark, I know you're, a, you're a, you know, you've written a lot of things for many years. You're a distinguished professor. Have you ever had a chat with some Hollywood stars on a panel on Martha's Vineyard and had a major New York publisher offer a book contract to you? Uh, well, that's happened to me six times. They they gave me two million dollars, but you know, I, I just I just wasn't up to it. So uh, anyway. yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. So oh, and there's another one like that too. Again, because I know we have a lot of professorial types on on listening to us. Here's another question: You don't have a law degree, right? Negative. And has the Harvard Law Review, which you know I suppose you could argue is the most single most prestigious legal journal in America, have they ever come up to you as a non-lawyer and offered you? Um, space in their pages? Uh, negative. Yeah, well, uh, Patrice Kalor's brutal victim uh, got that one too. So if she's a victim, I don't know what that makes you. But Well, uh, we're all victims, Scott. <laughs> but, so, some, but certainly <laughs> some go. more than some, much, 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 much more, more than others. All right, well, what about the third founder? What was her background? Sure. Alicia Garza is the third and arguably uh, the most radical. Uh, she grew up in San Rafael, California, uh, to start with, and then her parents moved to uh, Tiburon, a tiny and tony Marin County town, yeah. as, uh, as one report explains. It's also one of the whitest places in the Bay Area and with a median household income more than double uh, the state's average. Um, she became an activist in middle school, protesting abstinence-only sex ed, uh, and she says that her parents were solid liberals, uh, not but not especially political. Um, uh, she and Colors both, however, around their time of their in uh, high school or college, they both get taken into highly radical training programs. Uh, and in Garza's case, it was something called Soul. School of Unity and Liberation. And let me give you just a quick quote from her description of what that was like, okay? Yep. When I trained, and in her case, this was after college. Uh, when I trained in sociology in college, she's talking, we would read Marx and we would read de Tocqueville and we would read all these economic theorists, but in a void. It never got mentioned in those classes that social movements all over the world have used Marx and Lenin as a foundation to interrupt these systems that are really negatively impacting the majority of people. So it's about, it, it is about disruption. It's about revolution, radical change. Absolutely. In fact, on the policing thing I was saying earlier, you have to remember uh, what one of the, uh, Students for Democratic Society famously said in the 60s, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. Hmm. Hmm. And revolution means two things, violence and power. 
You, you know, Scott, you make violence to get power. One of the things that distresses so many people who were on the left and who went right, for instance, David Horowitz, is that they know about these motives. They know what the real purposes of the hard left are, but so many liberals and conservatives in this country give such a softer, milder version. Well, they're just liberals in a hurry. That's all. Uh, well, we have moments of extremism, but really it's, it's not, they have good intentions. When you read statements like that, I mean, they fit with what I've seen of people in the hard left up close. Uh, why, why does so much of America wish to avoid those, those disagreeable exposés of the left? Well, that's a great question, and, and uh, uh, the finest psychologist, I think, would struggle with it. Yeah. The best I have ever been able to manage is that uh, Freud didn't got a lot of things wrong, but on projection, he, he, he really nailed something. Yeah. And, it, and the projection here works in both ways. The leftists, of course, will tell you that the hardware store owner down the street, that brutal capitalist, you know, that he's, uh, he's intentionally trying to crush people of color and poor people and the rest, when in fact he's just trying to get the hardware store to not go out of business under a lockdown. And so the left is projecting its viciousness onto the you know, ordinary old American. And then in the opposite direction, the ordinary Americans are projecting their basic decency onto these poor, twisted, radical extremists um, – and they're both, of course, wildly misrepresenting the other side. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. How is it that many liberals well-off liberals who live very bourgeois, heteronormative family lives, why do they feel such sympathy for Black Lives Matter? Is it the old radical chic syndrome? Uh, well, it, it is the radical chic syndrome. And again, now there you probably are better off going from psychology to theology, I think. Because I definitely don't think you can understand the left without understanding it as a theological movement. Um, it, it, uh, violent socialism actually is Gnostic from the days of the original Gnostics onward. Um, but uh, uh, I think that you, you know, when people lack uh, a sane faith like Judaism uh, or Christianity, um, 
they have a terrible problem with the fact that we all have, we do have a conscience. We, we may overcome our conscience most of the time, but we have one. And so we struggle to have uh, our sins forgiven, uh, to confess our, uh, the wrongness in our lives. And uh, we want absolution. Uh, and supporting radicals like this, even when you yourself, yes, are, are perfectly normal upper middle class uh, suburbanite, um, it, it's soothing in a way. Uh, and it ha- also, remember, it helps to explain the wrongness in the world, including my own internal wrongness. Well, it's because there's this heteropatriarchal mon- cisgender monstrosity controlling the world. Um, and therefore, well, maybe those folks rioting in the cities aren't doing perfect stuff, but you can understand it given the, this brutal oppression. And by the way, my own sins against my children or my spouse, well, that's somehow mixed up in that too. Huh. And it's not really my fault. Huh. Uh, Scott, were you surprised by the recent news stories on Patrice Cullors purchasing very expensive homes in very nice, mostly very nice areas and running up real big tabs at uh, resorts for meetings. Did that uh, surprise no. you? <laughs> Not well. Well, we've already we've already touched on the the idea of being on panels on Martha's Vineyard yeah. with Hollywood stars and um so uh uh well, I think there's you know sort of there's a poor man's theologian, uh, Eric Hoffer, who gave us the wonderful line: "Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business, and eventually degenerates into a racket." Yeah. Uh, and that's that's totally true. Um, and Patrice Calors is just a laughable poster child uh, for precisely that phrase. This is the thing to remember too about the left is it'll it goes wildly from one extreme to the to the opposite extreme. So you'll have passive people who are pacifists for years then become murderers <laughs> uh, at the right moment and, and vice versa. So it's it, it's always zooming back and forth between wild, violent radicalism to um, you know fussy drawing room professorial socialism. Uh, these things go back and forth all the time. Uh, all right, Scott, what do you think is going to happen with Black Lives Matter in the next five years? Uh, well, one of the nice things uh, about these kinds of movements is because they're so incoherent uh, in their thinking, so utterly at odds with reality as uh, it is, they tend to destroy themselves over time. Now, the the impulse is never destroyed, um, and it, it it bubble. You know, it'll these same people will bubble up in some other new thing. You know, ten years from now, but with any luck, the actual structure that's been built up here, um, you'll have things like Patrice Calors's you know lavish lifestyle while claiming victimhood and whatnot. I mean, over time. That will the 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 and the institutions will destroy themselves. It's already happening to some degree, because some of the some of the biggest critics of Patrice Calors, you know, they don't write for First Things magazine. They're leaders of local chapters of Black Lives Matter who aren't buying multi-million dollar homes for themselves, and they'll get highly resentful uh, and feel exploited, understandably, um, and you'll have the institutional structures, you know, burst apart. 
I mean, this is like Angela Davis is sort of the, the matriarch or the den mother of, of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. She wrote the foreword to Patrice Pallor's memoir, for instance, and she's the one who 10 or 15 years ago got the whole uh, defund the police and, and open all the prisons craziness going. Um, well, yeah, she used to be a Communist Party member back when that was cool. Um, and to be fair, she inherited from mom and dad who were communists under Stalin. Um, so – but she doesn't, you know, she dropped the Communist Party. That's old hat. You know, who cares about the Communist Party USA? Yeah. Right now, Angela's on to new things. Um, and you see Cornell West works that way, too. You know, I don't think he's doing rap albums anymore, right? Rap is kind of, you know, that didn't, you got to move on to some new to some new uh, con. Yeah. A lot of this is con men type stuff. Uh, by the way, you know that Angela Davis became a professor at University of California, Santa Cruz, where she was given the very highest professorial position in the entire UC system, a university professorship. That's where she's been for, you know, 30 plus years doing very well. What could be more bourgeois than being a tenured professor in the University of California system? Well, the only thing that would be more bourgeois, Mark, would be what she also does. She now goes to the kind of prep school where it's 50000 plus for tuition for your little kitty, and she tells them about the terrible, uh, brutal cis-heteronormative uh, cis patriarchies and the rest um, for $20,000 an hour. Yeah. That, I think, <laughs> is more bourgeois. The, uh, near, near where we are, Scott, the Fairfax County school system paid – uh, Professor Kendi uh, to give a 45-minute speech on online, and uh, I believe he was given a $20,000 fee for doing that. Thank you, taxpayers. Exactly. And by the way, you know, he was at American University here, and they basically, he's kind of had to abandon that because he made, he came in saying, we're going to do all these fabulous things. And then, of course, you know, when you're having fine dinners and take, doing your speech tours, it's hard to really get a lot of stuff done. So, you know, these people are, are constantly setting up their cons and then having to run from them uh, because it, not, the, the, the glorious revolution and the new world and the new man never quite show up. Indeed. Uh, so, Scott, uh, one quick final question. Uh, is George Soros's influence going to diminish in the next few years? Uh, well, he is uh, quite old at this point, so yeah. it's hard to see that he lives too many more years. And the next generation are are lefty, but they seem to be less zealous. Um, the oldest son uh, is reputed to, to care more for being drunk at noon in a fine New York restaurant and chasing skirts than, than you know out there on the hustings. But on the other hand, the $18 billion that he put into his already multi-billion dollar philanthropies a few years ago, you know, there'll be a lot of hardworking folks spending that money in perpetuity. So, so I don't think it's fair to say it'll actually diminish much. His influence will diminish much. Scott Walter, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be here. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.